Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is the transfer guru in Transfer Towers, Mr Duncan Castles, Dr Duncan Castles. Today we'll be bringing you lots of information on Real Madrid, Paris Saint-Germain, Tottenham Hotspur, Manchester United, Chelsea, Liverpool, Brighton Hove Albion, as well as, of course, the Donkey Award for this week. The highlight, indeed, of TW. Duncan, we're going to start at the Santiago Bernabeu. Well, not really, because, of course, they're playing their games at the training ground at the moment. But uh, very, very uh, interesting development here at the transfer window. We are hearing that Real Madrid... Certain people there in very high places, including the president, Florentino Perez, are losing patience with Aidan Hazard, a player who they bought for some 150 million euros from Chelsea and who has not performed to anywhere near the standard he did at Stamford Bridge. Uh, He has been injured, of course, and that's not his fault but since returning from injury on three different occasions, has failed to replicate the kind of scintillating influence that he had at Chelsea. It's been mentioned that uh, Perez would not be that averse to um, using Hazard as a pawn potentially for PSG's Kylian Mbappé, who, as we have reported on the transfer window, is a long-term transfer target for Real Madrid and who is expected to potentially leave the French champions this summer. Hazard, of course, uh, is very, very well paid, but with PSG's um, ability to uh, pay well uh, and the fact that Mbappe is one year out of contract this coming summer, it would seem to be a fairly logical move should indeed both the player and the club decide that this was one experiment which hasn't quite worked. Duncan, this, I think, has been a a marriage of some uh, difficult circumstances for Hazard and Real Madrid. He went there as one of the best players in the world at his peak and a player who they had admired and desired for a long time. However, as we know, it's not worked out. And as we know, we can't blame the player himself because of the injuries that he has sustained during that time. But uh, despite the fact that head coach Zidane Zidane has recently defended him for the poor form, it does seem, and said our sources are very, very high up in the Madrid hierarchy, 
that Hazard could be looking at a exit from the Santiago Bernabeu much quicker than he would have expected. Yeah, you just have to look at the numbers to see how it hasn't worked for him at Madrid. Um, he's now in his second season there. He scored a total of three goals in all his time at Madrid and only played 32 matches, just 22 in La Liga. Um, so his return over that season and a half at Madrid is less than half of his worst ever season at Chelsea in terms of goals scored. And, you know, those final three campaigns at Chelsea, he was scoring 17, 17, 21, as well as being obviously a, a huge uh, chance creator. As you say, injury has played a, a significant part in this. Um, I can see why Madrid would be thinking if there is an opportunity to offload as part of a deal we really want to do, let's try and explore that. They are like Barcelona in, uh, in very difficult financial circumstances. Um, La Liga is interesting because their response to COVID has been driven by, in many ways, by the governing bodies in that the governing bodies put a limit on the club's budget for any given season at the start of a season and each club has to meet that limit. So they've kind of enforced um, uh, wage and transfer spend cuts on the clubs, which I, I don't think that Barcelona and, uh, and Real Madrid are particularly unhappy about in some senses because it's allowed them to go to their players and say, well, we have no choice in this. The league is reducing uh, the money available to us to spend on your wages. Therefore, you're going to have to take a pay cut. Um, compare that with England where um, certain big clubs have tried to enforce pay cuts or tried to discuss pay cuts with their with their um, senior playing staff and and met great resistance. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of notable exception in all of this in England is Manchester United, who have not ever broached that subject, did not try and take government loans, unlike Arsenal and uh, Tottenham, who did not try and uh, uh, lay off staff either temporarily or permanently and, uh, and, and actually put a lot of money into the local community and they deserve to be praised for that effort. But... You know, Madrid have got themselves in a financial situation where they have a lot of high earners. Um, they do want Kylian Mbappe. They've wanted him for years. They almost signed him before he went to Paris Saint-Germain. Something we've talked about in the podcast on many occasions is that they had a deal and they believed that Mbappe was going to come and then Mbappe backed out of it him and his father backed out of it because they felt it was safer to um, pursue the next stage of his career remaining in French football uh, it's being based in Paris, not moving outside France for the first time at that young age and not being brought to Madrid as a direct replacement or a perceived direct replacement for Cristiano Ronaldo because of the extra pressure that would place on him during that move. Mbappe, again, a story we broke in the podcast, has signalled to Paris Saint-Germain that he will not renew his contract. Um, it goes into its final year this summer and it's essentially presented them with um, an option to take a transfer fee this summer or lose them for nothing in a year's time. Um, therefore, you have Madrid, Barcelona, um, Liverpool, Manchester United, possibly Manchester City, looking at the possibility of, of taking Mbappe this summer. Um, when he's available at a reasonable price and the battle ensuing, you reported that 
Mbappe's camp had basically drawn up a, a, a questionnaire, a survey to put to interested suitors to see how they would um, handle him going to the club and what they could offer him in terms of commercial development, playing career, importance within the team, all of these factors, quite a novel approach, but something that's not entirely surprising in modern football um, with players of that status, with the, the amount of money they can look to achieve over the course of their career. If Madrid managed to convince Mbappe that the place to go is Madrid rather than one of those other options, then they're going to have to raise money to do it. Um, and Hazard would be one of those solutions where it could be possible to secure a transfer fee, albeit far less than what Madrid paid for him to get, get him from Chelsea, and to move a very significant item off their wage bill. Whether Paris Saint-Germain prepared to accept that trade, different question altogether. Um, Hazard just turned 30, Obviously, those numbers that have Madrid thinking about moving him out are not going to impress Paris Saint-Germain. Um, they have also, as we've reported, been looking at the possibility of taking Lionel Messi on a free transfer in the summer. Um, should he go through with his decision to leave Barcelona, regardless of who wins the, the presidential election, which will be concluded before the end of this month or should be concluded before the end of this month. It's difficult to see Paris Saint-Germain doing deals for Messi and Hazard simultaneously in the same window um, while adhering in whatever way they plan to adhere to financial fair play. They've managed to uh, get uh, legal solutions around it on a couple of occasions which have prevented them from being banned from European competition as they probably should have been for their expenditure. Obviously, as the other big nation state club in European football, where financial fair play considerations taken out of the equation, they could afford to do Hazard and Messi simultaneously, but they have to at least come up with a way of satisfying UEFA and satisfying competitor clubs um, should they try and do something like that in the summer. Hazard Fozzi's fame and his career to this point, Duncan, in the Premier League, is there a way, is there any potential that he could return to England should Madrid decide to put him on the market and dispose of him? Because obviously, his um, transfer fee was very high when he left Chelsea and his wages are very high. But clearly England was uh, an English football, was an environment in which he thrived and his value to a Premier League club would be very, very substantial in terms of what he brings of, in goals and uh, assists and chances created. If Madrid have taken... A decision or or headed down the line of a decision where Eden Hazard is one of the players they used to um, raise revenue for number one target in the summer, Kylian Mbappe, then obviously they're going to offer him to English clubs because that is one of the premier markets where there might be money available to take a player of, of, uh, of his talent on. We saw this pre-COVID. It has become increasingly difficult in European football to move those players out, especially when they get into their late 20s and early 30s. You know, Barcelona's financial predicament, a lot of it is about 
buying players who have failed being stuck with their wage bill and not being able to to shift that elsewhere. Um, Manchester United experienced a similar problem with Alexis Sanchez for a while and had to take a substantial hit on the contract they agreed with Sanchez in order to get him um, out of uh, a dressing room where he was unhappy and where he was causing issues and and into another league. It's not a simple process of of saying, well, here's a very good footballer um, uh, who, okay, we accept that we're not going to get our, the money we paid in the transfer fee back, but we still want a transfer fee and we want you to take on all of his wages. And um, we have to get him to accept that move too. You can easily see this in a COVID environment developing into a situation where the best Madrid are able to do is, is loan the player with an option to buy um, in order to remove his wages for a season. Kind of what they've done with, with Gareth Bale and, and Tottenham. Um, and, and in that case, they've had to compensate on the wages. And um, you see with Gareth Bale a very similar pattern of performance or non-performance as the one we experienced at, at Real Madrid. Um, for several seasons and one which Bale's um, retinue of advisors were always keen to blame on Madrid, the club, the press around the club uh, and the coach. Um, funnily, he changes to another league and, uh, and there doesn't seem to be a great difference in, in what Bale is delivering on the pitch because he's rarely making his way onto the pitch. So pre-COVID, Clubs were cautious about doing these de- these kind of deals because they're very expensive. Post COVID, that's just been magnified. It's an interesting point you raised, Duncan, um, about Gareth Bale because our information is that it's highly unlikely that he will uh, be loaned again to Tottenham Hotspur uh, for next season. Nor indeed will the transfer uh, be made permanent back to his former club. Um, the phrase um, captain, leader, legend has become a little bit hackneyed, of course, in football. Uh, but for Bale, it seems to have extended to Wales, golf, Madrid, Spurs. Um, and that probably sums up where he is right now in his career, despite the fact he has won four Champions League titles, as well as La Liga uh, at Madrid, as well as uh, the fact that uh, he is only 31 years old and his career should not be nearing an end. And yet he still fails to make game time with any regularity at Tottenham, the same as he did at Real. Uh, what are you hearing, Duncan, with regards to uh, what or how he is viewed at Spurs in terms of training, in terms of his attitude, in terms of you know, his ambition, basically, with regards to playing time and helping the squad and the team to be successful this season? Well, I mean, he turns 32 in July. I think you have to factor in with Bale that he started as a, as a senior footballer at a very young age. So his actual playing career has been a long one, um, which allows accumulation of injuries. It's kind of in a contrast with someone like Didier Drogba who, who started playing high level football at a very late stage and therefore that helped him 
to perform at, at elite level um, deeper into his 30s than a lot of players manage. You just have to look at the numbers. This was a, a transfer that was done with great acclaim, uh, which Tottenham were very pleased with and proud of. And the idea certainly wasn't to have a Gareth Bale who um, by the middle of January had played just 160 Premier League minutes. He started just one game in the Premier League against Brighton, scored the winner in that, interestingly enough. Um, but only four Premier League appearances in total. Europa League, six appearances, 393 minutes. Uh, League Cup, one appearance, 45 minutes. And, and I think that emphasises the importance that uh, Jose Mourinho has placed on winning the League Cup and trying to get that uh, that piece first piece of silverware for many years for Tottenham. But it shows also that Bale is not a preferred player in his lineup because he's just getting one appearance in the League Cup. Again, FA Cup, they've only played one game, but all he's played is 25 minutes against a non-league side. In total, he scored three goals. He's had, he arrived with uh, fitness problems, knee issues, and it has had calf issues subsequently. Um, I'm hearing that he is happy. Uh, he's not a he's not a troublesome figure at the training ground. He's not causing problems in the in the way he was uh, was doing it at Real Madrid. Um, it, it's not a, a question of um, a, a difficult attitude um, and personality in the training ground and being upset with not playing. What I am hearing is that the level of performance at the training ground isn't particularly impressive. Uh, and people feel that uh, he he is not putting in sufficient effort on the training ground to fight his way into the team. There's a lot of competition at that end of the field. Um, obviously, Tottenham have Kane and, and Sun Young-min as their as a guaranteed starters and their, and their predominant source of goals. Steven Bergwijn has played mostly uh, the majority of games alongside them. Um, then you have Lucas Moura, who Mourinho rates and can do a similar job to Bergwijn and Eric Lamella. Um, so Bale does have a fight on his hands to get into the team, but this wasn't what was envisaged. They are not paying all of his salary, but they're paying a very substantial salary. Um, as I said, there was a massive expectation that, that he would substantially improve Tottenham. Uh, it's very, very hard to see if this situation continues and Bale doesn't force his way into the team. And what I'm hearing is that the feeling is he's not trying to force his way into the team, that Tottenham would um, take up the, the second year on that loan because at present, it is a waste of money. Most importantly though, Duncan, has he managed to improve his golf handicap? <laughs> This I don't know. We uh, we need to do some. We must uh, have find out. We must find out um, if his handicaps come down back playing in his natural uh, environment on the course, rather than in those sunny climes of Spain where it's all target golf, uh, beautiful fairways and lovely greens. Um, well, uh, one more uh, story out of Madrid for the transfer window podcast on this particular episode is the ongoing saga of Sergio Ramos's contract negotiations. Now, Ramos is out of contract this summer. And uh, again, uh, our information 
speaking to people uh, at Real Madrid is that uh, Ramos uh, remains um, recalcitrant with regards to signing the one-year deal that he has been offered. Um, his brother is his agent in all of this. And when asked, a member of the told us that uh, this is classic Sergio. Um, he plays poker with the president, I mean, metaphorically, obviously, uh, and waits for um, him to blink and then signs the deal that he wants and will stay. However, it is the case that uh, said same contact um, revealed to us that um, Sergio's brother has told them that Manchester United have been in contact. Now, we're unable to confirm that today um, on the pod. We will endeavour to do so in the coming days for you and report that on the pod next week. However, it kind of would fit um, with some things that Solskjaer has been doing at Old Trafford. And I'm thinking here of Edison Cavani, Duncan, in bringing in an experienced and older uh, player who has achieved lots of success. Ramos is, if anything, a brilliant leader and would be someone who uh, would certainly be beneficial to Solskjaer's defence in terms of commanding it, uh, in bringing uh, calmness and a sense of authority, which they currently lack as well. And so it would not be out of uh, any kind of sense of reality that uh, Manchester United may well have an interest in Sergio Ramos. Remember, they did have an interest in him the last time he was out of contract. Um, but of course, Madrid now do expect him to sign a new deal, but it's just he's waiting for the offer of more than one year. He's now 35, which is not uh, overly um, old for a central defender and certainly one of his quality and we've seen Thiago Silva adapt to the Premier League quickly with Chelsea Duncan um, if you were and I know you're not a betting man where would you put your money on Sergio Ramos does he stay does he go well, he, he turns 35 in March um, we've been through this process before as you say and uh, I think my last time around Manchester United believed that they had a real chance of of signing him and, uh, and pursued it aggressively and were used to get a superior contract um, from Real Madrid uh, I think also, also be... known as a Nico Gaiton ruse I think Look, I think they will be very cautious about getting involved in this. It doesn't surprise me that the Ramos's brother, who's representing him in these contract negotiations and will get a commission on the deal, um, is suggesting that Manchester United and would be calling Manchester United to make the player available, given that it's very well known that, that United want to strengthen at centre-back and need to strengthen at centre-back. Um, obviously, Ramos is right-footed and, and United are, are targeting a left-footed centre-back to allow Harry Maguire to move over to the right-hand side, so that wouldn't be an ideal fit. Also, um, what United have been scouting for and assessing on the market is a younger 
centre-back with lots of uh, development years ahead of him. Um, and the salary would be huge. Um, Ramos is one of the best played players in Europe. The, the fight at the Madrid end is very interesting because a lot of it's being carried out in the public domain in terms of briefing from either side about the situation. Madrid are saying that they're prepared to give him a contract on the same salary terms he's on at the moment, albeit that he would have to accept the standard percentage wage cut that the rest of the Madrid um, players have, have had enforced on them because of COVID, as we discussed earlier in this podcast. Um, Ramos's camp are saying that's not the case uh, and they don't have that offer as yet. Um, I don't see anyone who knows the player well and knows Madrid well who thinks or is, is reporting that Ramos is serious um, about moving elsewhere, um, that his preference is to move elsewhere. Um, the, the general consensus is what he wants to do is remain at Madrid, finish his career there um, and remain the central figure or one of the central figures at the club. His, his power at the club and this is something that's happened with Madrid players for, for years now, is substantial because of what he's achieved on his pitch, on uh, his popularity, his reputation. And, and I think that there's an element of that involved in this negotiation process and that Florentino Perez wants to be the, the fundamental strongest force at Real Madrid and would like to see, like to retain Ramos. He doesn't want to lose him as a player. But we'd like him to bend uh, to Perez as well and, and feel like he's got the best of the, the contract negotiation. Um, but yeah, I, I think if you're being offered Ramos from, as, an, as a free agent in the summer, that's a deal you have to look with a great deal of circumspection and, and not um, expect that you can conclude it um, by uh, coming up with the best financial offer uh, and a superior offer to Madrid. One of my favourite things I've read in the last few days about Sergio Ramos, Duncan, was the suggestion um, that he could go to Liverpool. I'm sure Mo Salah would certainly welcome him with open arms, um, <laughs> or, or at least a headbutt, one of, one of the other. I'm not sure. Probably, uh, and potentially, uh, the most important game of the English Premier League season will take place this Sunday when Liverpool play Manchester United. Manchester United head to Anfield, uh, top of the Premier League for the first time in just over three years and with a three-point advantage over their most old rivals. And of course, it's often described as the most important game in English football. Uh, despite the prevalence of Manchester City in recent years uh, in terms of winning titles um, against Man United and Liverpool. Duncan, this is um, a game which will probably tell us a lot, given where we are at this point in the season, um, halfway through uh, into the second round of fixtures. We're out now of the holiday period fixture congestion, although, of course, there are still... Uh, games left unplayed because of COVID. But how do you see this influencing the way that the rest of the season may go? Because clearly, um, 
a six-point gap from Manchester United would be significant. But at the same time, Liverpool have not lost at home uh, for more than two years now. And also, they're unbeaten against uh, domestic rivals in 70 games. So it doesn't, in terms of statistics, look good for Manchester United. But at the same time, they have climbed above Liverpool in the league. And a lot has been made of that. Look, it's clearly a huge opportunity for Manchester United. This season has turned into a huge opportunity for Manchester United because the top two clubs have come back towards them and, and ended up um, beneath them at, at this current point of time. Obviously, Manchester City win their game in hand. They will be one point behind um, Manchester United. Um, so United come away from Anfield with a draw at the weekend, which I think would be perceived as a as a successful outcome and then um, City have the option or the the ability to go top if they win that game in hand because they already have a, a better goal difference but you know the, if you look at where Premier League was after 17 games over the last three seasons you're looking at leaders on 49 45 and 49 points and here we have leaders on 36 points um, by three points after 17 matches so Manchester United clearly improved over where they were um, last couple of seasons. So they you know, finished 66 points and 66 points um, in Solskjaer's first two seasons in charge. Their equal lowest total in the Premier League. They're on course for over 80 points at present if they keep their, their current um, win rate up. Um, they've got to a top in a, in a league in which Solskjaer had targeted finishing third and closing the gap to Manchester City and Manchester United. That's what he went into the season saying. If you look at what he's talked about today, he's very much downplaying um, the ability to win the league. He's saying, I stick with my prediction from the start of the season. The team has improved, but um, I don't expect us to win the title. Um, but I think it's also an opportunity, uh, not just in terms of where they are and that ability to, to develop a six-point lead over the champions. It's an opportunity in that they go to Anfield with no crowd there, um, which turns it into a different game. Um, we've seen the Manu Matic talk about playing football without crowds recently and, and saying how much he dislikes it and how it feels like training games and training sessions. Um, it was positive that they're, we're playing football again rather than not playing at all, but it is not the real thing. Um, and of course, they go up against the Liverpool side, who will be without two um, first-choice defenders, for sure, um, and probably without them for the, the entirety of the season, Virgil van Dijk and uh, Joe Gomez, and are struggling to get Joe Matip fit um, to get him on the pitch. So uh, Klopp is faced with a decision about who he puts in at centre-back. Fabinho has been a standard choice there and has done well, but the, the use of Fabinho at centre-back weakens Liverpool's midfield. They're not able to press as high up the pitch as they are normally. They play a deeper defensive line. Um, they don't win the ball back in the opposition half as high up the pitch as their previous team did, and that's cost them points through the course of the season. Uh, so that, that kind of solution of using Fabinho there and sometimes Jordan Henderson at centre-back 
hurts them. Um, it'll be interesting to see what they do from a tactical perspective, because while Solskjaer had done very well in the, the first two seasons in charge of Manchester United against big six clubs and actually got most of his best results in those games, he struggled against the big six clubs this season. Um, I think because most of them have realised that Solskjaer's tactic in those matches is to sit deep and use his really fast forwards and Bruno Fernandes, Paul Pogba, who are, who are great providers of passes. Uh, Bruno Fernandes in particular has an ability to, to pick out passes that other players don't see and, and put them on the feet of, of strikers and create chances that way. He's a, a very unpredictable and dangerous um, contributor from midfield and of course scores, score goals himself. But you saw Manchester City um, in one of the recent games play more cautiously than I think I've ever seen a Pep Guardiola uh, Manchester City side play against Solskjaer because he didn't want to give those quick forwards the opportunity to score in the counter-attack. In many ways, having that weaker defence presents Klopp with the option of doing the same. Um, does he decide to do that? Or does he, he say, we'll, we'll, we'll play for the dull game? We'll play the conservative style. We'll do what Manchester City did in one of the games against uh, Manchester United. We'll do what Arsenal did. We'll do what Tottenham did uh, and look to score against them on the counter-attack, take advantage of Manchester United's weaknesses in the centre of defence and Harry Maguire's lack of pace. Or does he have to go for it because he feels um, he doesn't want to come out of this match with a, a three-point deficit? I think very interesting to see what the two managers do from a, a tactical perspective. And interesting to see how the referee um, performs because Klopp, of course, has deliberately and intentionally put out a message about Manchester United's extraordinary rate of penalties um, since Solskjaer has been in charge of the club. Um, that, that comment from... Uh, I think just over a week ago now where Klopp said, I hear now that Manchester United had more penalties in two years than I had in five and a half years. I have no idea if that's my fault or how that can happen. So Klopp is there for trying to put pressure on the referees not to give penalties. And you know, understandably so when, when Manchester United get a record number of, of Premier League penalties in the entire history of the Premier League last season uh, when they were struggling as a team. You know, it, does, it does not make sense that Manchester United get 14 penalties last season. They've already had six this season. The only team who's had more in the Premier League is Leicester. Um, and we know how uh, adroit Jamie Vardy is at, at winning penalties. Um, <laughs> what happens with that how the, the, the referees respond um, is interesting to watch because everyone is now paying attention to it. We had Mark Clattenburg correctly talking about how Klopp complains when things aren't going his way in, in a newspaper column, um, but also admitting that when he was a referee that, uh, that Manchester United did have a, an aura around them. And, uh, and they were given favourable decisions. I think if you look at the penalties Manchester United have had this season in the Premier League, they've had six points. Um, 
from uh, questionable decisions against Aston Villa, Brighton, where the penalty was given after um, the uh, the the game had finished, and uh, and in one other match, which uh, which turned uh, uh, what would potentially have been a draw into um, a win. So you know that's the six points that could put ahead of Liverpool um, by winning on Sunday. Well, Duncan, I'm sure as I have, you've been looking at the um, timelines or uh, social media platforms, which is, of course, at Transfer Podcast on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And they have been full of Man United fans gloating about the fact that they are top of the league. It seems to be my duty, Duncan, to say to you, are you going to take this opportunity to congratulate Ole Gunnar Solskjaer on the great job he's done getting United to the summit of English football? I, I I don't think gloating is is fair. I think enjoying the fact they're top of the league and, and understandably so. It's you know it's the first time that they have been in this position in January uh, since Ferguson left the club. Um, obviously, it's slightly deceptive of being in the position in January because we started the season a lot later and we still haven't got to as many games as you would normally have had played in January. Um, it's unexpected. Solskjaer himself says it's unexpected. Um, we've talked about how the other clubs have come back to them. We've talked about how United have had uh, the again, as they did last season, uh, the rub of the green when it came to the, came to decisions. I mean, the other game in which they they took three points, where it could have been one point, was the West Bromwich Albion match, where West Brom had a penalty overturned by VAR. Uh, Manchester United go up the other end of the field, foul um, a. Uh, a West Bromwich Albion player in the process clearly the the referee ignores it and get a penalty uh, themselves that that's the kind of thing that has happened to them do they look like a side who are going to go on and uh, stay top of the table um as we've discussed in the podcast they've had very very few really convincing performances this season a lot of their their wins have been uh in situations where things have, have gone in their favour. They've been rarely have they been dominant in matches in the way you'd expect from a team that's top of the table. Um, but as people have pointed out, they are a, a team that, that, that seems to thrive on, on highs. And if they can win this match, they, they place themselves in a very good position. As we discussed in the last podcast, a chunk of this is about the players being motivated to prove that they're good enough. Uh, to win titles because they've received a lot of criticism during this process. One of the side effects of the stalwart defence of Solskjaer by former teammates uh, who have very prominent positions in the English media um, who are still yet to criticise anything he's done during his, uh, his period as manager, which is bizarre given the obvious mistakes that have been made and which cost them um, Champions League qualification, for example. One of the side effects of that is that those those um, pundits have to put the blame on the players. So I think that there's a, quite a lot of players um, who feel that they want to prove that they can um, win silverware at Manchester United, um, regardless of some of those players' question marks about the way they're being managed and uh, and trained and coached. Um, so that that's an element in this success as well. Dear transfer window listeners, 
I pulled the pin, I lobbed the grenade, and with absolute skill, Mr. Duncan Castles kicked the grenade back so that it did not explode <laughs> anywhere near him. Um, very, very good. So I know I'm going to throw another one now. Who wins on Sunday, Duncan? Uh, you know my predictions for these games. You should be able to tell me what I'm going to say. I always go for the same result. Are well, you going for the draw then, are you? Yeah, 1-1 one, one is always the safe <laughs> the percentage <laughs> bet. Is, is, like is, is there ever a safe, a safe bet? I'm not sure. I think Liverpool will win, actually. I'm, I'm going to, as usual, not sit on the fence. Um, I think Liverpool will come into their own. I do think Klopp will play his strongest side, which means the uh, trident will be present. And that'll be too much for Manchester United's uh, rather cushy defence. To Chelsea now, and uh outgoing uh, player at Stamford Bridge, that is Fiaco Tamori, who has featured very, very sparingly this season under Frank Lampard. Um, as we have discussed many times on the podcast, uh, Lampard is still trying to figure out the best formation for his defensive lineup. He still would like to acquire Declan Rice to be the anchor of a three-man central defensive unit. Uh, that, of course, is all dependent on price and availability. And as the transfer window uh, comes towards its uh, culmination at the end of this month, it certainly has not moved forward. So Tomori, in order to get more game time, is actually being chased by AC Milan, who of course are challenging for the Serie A title this season. Lampard has made it clear, and it's certainly our understanding, that he does see a future for Tomori at Chelsea. But as a player who went out on loan from West Ham to Swansea City as a teenager, he sees the benefit of players putting, uh, going out on loan and playing first-team football. Milan have many, many fixtures to fulfil, both European and domestic, in the last half of the season. And despite the fact that they already have uh, an established centre-back pairing, Tomori is seen as someone who can come in and play and give a rotational basis to that particular team at a time when they are chasing the Scudetto. Duncan, this is someone who Lampard rated so highly, took him to Derby County. He was one of their players of the season there, but not quite proven himself at Premier League level. Would Milan be a good option, even though he's not guaranteed to start every game? Look, it's a, it's a good option for Lampard and, and Chelsea in that you, I mean, this is a club that has usually has no hesitation about loaning players overseas um, to give them experience and to increase their value and hopefully on certain occasions to develop, bring them back to the club. Um, I think it could, if Tomori is keen on the move, it's a good option for him. I, we've seen a number of English players doing what was so unusual for English players, young English players for, for decades, um, which is to go to major European leagues, uh, play there, establish them as themselves in the team, learn what it's like um, working in a different language, working in a different country, a different uh, style of football and coming either coming back as better players or turning themselves into um, 
centrally important national team players as Jaden Sancho has uh, most notably done. So it could work for both sides. Um, I think also emphasises the problem Frank Lampard has had in creating a reliable defence um, over his season and a half at the club, which has contributed to a lot of his problems um, and contributed to what is now quite substantial pressure on him um, over his job. Uh, and we've got into a position where people are saying that Chelsea are exploring um, replacements for Lampard. And, you know, we all know that, that Chelsea historically have had no hesitation about changing coaches when they feel that is the, the best way to go. Um, and in fact, they're quite happy to brief that their policy of rapidly changing coaches is one that has contributed to their substantial success over the Roman Abramovich era. Um, whether they decide to go down that route with Lampard or not, Lampard will have the defence that he never got the centre-back he was asking for. Um, basically since the, the start of, of uh, what this time last year when it became uh, possible for, for Chelsea to re-enter the transfer market. It's a position he's prioritised throughout that period. It's a position where he said to the club, um, I would rather spend on a starting leader centre-back who fits my system than buy one of the, the top-line young attacking players that you've decided to go for. And, and it hasn't happened yet. Um, so whatever Chelsea decide to do with Lampard, he can justifiably argue that he has not been fully supported um, with recruitment in areas that he's prioritised. Now, that again also is not an unfamiliar story with, uh, with Chelsea managers. Uh, man after man has gone through that, that, uh, that uh, problem. And, uh, and the majority of them, when they decide to fight the club over it, have ended up uh, hastening their dismissal. And I think one of the things that Lampard has been astute about here is being aware of those circumstances and, and trying to manage his relationships with Marina Granovskaya and ultimately Roman Abramovich not to get into a head-on conflict over these matters. Almost like someone's trying to set him up for a fall, Duncan. Where have we seen that before? And speaking of which, Avram Grant has uh, given an interview himself on Instagram to distance himself uh, from suggestions that he was in the frame to become part of a kind of support network for Lampard, uh, an old head, if you like, to... Um, be someone who Lampard could go to and consult uh, someone who's been there, done it, etc. Albeit, well, for like 10 months um, at Stamford Bridge. It seems like kind of classic Avram in terms of self-promotion, Duncan. Uh, absolutely. I think this was a story that was generated by Avram Grant on his social media account and, um, and partially knocked down by Avram Grant on his social media account. Um, the, the latest video... Uh, where he responds to all the positive comments that he's received from many, many Chelsea supporters about the idea that he would return to Stamford Bridge in a, in a glorious attempt to support the incumbent manager and improve his performance, which is 
remember how he arrived at Stamford Bridge in the very first place um, all those years ago, um, that despite all that um, positivity he'd had from Chelsea fans, there had been no official approach from Chelsea, which again is a, is a, uh, a careful choice of words on Abraham's part. Um, he is a, I think he's probably more astute in his operations in, in areas like this of using the media um, to put his name in the headlines, um, certainly than he is as a football coach or technical director. Um, arguably, he's more astute when it comes to developing relationships uh, because it was that development of relationship with Roman Abramovich that got him in the position to be um, manager uh, and technical director of, of Chelsea when um, he never had a CV to, to take a job on like that. Um, I don't think Frank Lampard would welcome it were Chelsea too seriously considered doing it. And um, given his history at Chelsea Football Club um, and the way he performed when he was uh, in that position previously, I don't think it would be something that would improve Chelsea's fortunes either. Duncan, we um, reported on the podcast earlier this week uh, that Brighton and Hove Albion's move for the Ecuadorian international midfielder uh, Moises Casado um, was complicated. It has continued to be complicated uh, for all the reasons that we explained on Tuesday. But the reason I bring it up is only because a couple of months ago we broke the story that uh, Tarek Lamptey, the young right back, now 21 years old, who Chelsea signed a year ago in this window um, for a bargain, what looks like a bargain, certainly, £3.6 million, is very close to signing a new deal at the club, which will more than double his wages to £40,000 a week, and will take him up to 2025. And this, of course amid concrete interest from Bayern Munich and Sevilla, which we also have reported on the podcast. Is this, Duncan, a way of increasing his value with a view to selling either sooner or later? Or do you think Lamptey would be better staying at the Amex and developing himself and his career in the Premier League? I think, look, he's a player with a huge amount of admirers, which is what you see when, when Bayern Munich um, explored the possibility of signing him in the summer um, when they, they felt they need to uh, strengthen it at right back. Bayern Munich don't these days make a huge number of mistakes in the transfer market. Um, they will pinpoint younger players who have just broken into senior football and, uh, and make heavy bets on them and they were you know, to the extent that they had budget to work with in a COVID-affected transfer market, they were trying to do that with Lamptey. Um, look, it, this is a pretty standard process of you you have a player on a wage which is substantially lower than his market value. Um, the player uh, and his representatives ensure that, uh, that they get a pay rise um, and the club um, gets a bit more security over uh, negotiations should one of those um, bigger, more powerful clubs decide to go um, with a with a, an aggressive uh, approach in the 
in the summer window to sign him. So I think it's astute on Brighton's part. Um, look, you know probably better than I do that the the, the position that that Brighton hold over players of that level is that should a club come in with a substantial offer which meets their valuation um, for a player who has the opportunity to step up to Champions League football by leaving, they won't stand in the way, but their valuations are high. Um, they're not going to be ripped off in, in the market either. Um, one other aspect I think is important here is that, that Brighton's standard system of playing with three central defenders and wing backs suits Lamptey. Um, he's not a, a tall player. Um, I've talked to people who rate him highly, but say that if you're going to sign Lamptey, you want to be using him as a wing back. He will not be as effective as a um, straightforward fullback in a in a back four because his height disadvantage can be exploited by the opposition. So I think that's another factor that um, that should be important to Lamptey when when having chosen to stay at Brighton, but also when considering um, the type of clubs who who would be trying to sign him. Lamptey's certainly been impressive, and as you say, Duncan correctly um, has lots of admirers. Uh, News uh, is that his hamstring injury, which has kept him out for the last three games, is healing and he may well be in contention for the game at Leeds United this weekend. As this is the second podcast of the week, it is, of course, also the Donkey Award, which... um, Thank you for your responses to last week's Donald Donkey, uh, which was, of course, a Donald Trump-inspired award. And this week, we're going to go for another politically inspired uh, nomination. And that's because the UK government, in conjunction with the football authorities, have intervened to say that players on the pitch during matches should observe social distancing rules and not hug and be in close contact when celebrating a goal. Um, obviously, this has caused a, a lot of uh, different conversations from different people with regards to um, how feasible um, you can make it to uh, effectively ban emotional responses to what is an emotional game. However, uh, we will take this opportunity to um, create the Donkey Award for things that shouldn't be allowed in football on the basis that hugs are no longer allowed for goal celebrations. Duncan, I'm going to open up the golden envelope here. I'm pleased to say, yet again, that the COVID crisis has not interrupted our supply of said envelopes. Uh, I'm no, I have no idea why that's the case, but um, I think they may come from a non-COVID country. Anyway, uh, so we're going to start with the first nomination of things that shouldn't be allowed in football. Uh, Very much a bet noir for you, Duncan. Six-minute video-assisted referee reviews should not be allowed in football. Um, I think I know what you think about that one. Uh, I think I know what I think about the second one, and that is 
Jack Grealish's histrionics in winning free kicks. And I'm surprised, actually. It made me think today, Duncan, about the fact that it's now described in statistics as most free kicks won. How can you win a free kick? Surely a free kick's awarded because you've been fouled. You can't win it. Which almost in itself justifies Grealish's uh, behaviour when anyone uh, literally points a finger at him and he goes down. Anyway, uh, and the third nomination is another favourite of Duncan's, and you'll all be very familiar with this one. Nation-state takeovers should not be allowed in football. And one of the reasons uh, this week that we can um, point to for exactly this nomination is story that uh, Gabriel Almeida, the academy player at Manchester City, um, has come out and given an interview to The Athletic in which he states that his father was paid to be a scout for Manchester City, but never did a single minute's work of scouting. Uh, so there we go, Duncan. I'm just going to recap. Six-minute VR reviews, Jack Grealish, full stop, and uh, nation-state takeovers. Please give us your winner of this week's coveted award. Yeah, well, well thanks for those nominations from the, the Kiwi-sourced uh, golden envelope. Um, Look, I can't go with Greg, Jack Grealish, uh, regardless of how much you. I think you should. His, his I really do think you should. Pitch. No, I um, think you should. <laughs> because he's he is actually very enjoyable to watch when he's not uh, hitting the turf um, uh, without being challenged. And and let's face it, he's he's hardly the only player in the the Premier League who specialises in um, generating fouls. That no, I agree. I agree there. with you, Duncan. I agree with you. Um. The six-minute VAR decision that we saw uh, in the Manchester United-Burnley match at the week um, was typical of uh, the absurdities of the system where um, it came down to the referee, Kevin Friend, missing what was a clearly dangerous um, challenge from Luke Shaw uh, on a Burnley player and, uh, and really being advised of that challenge should have been sufficient to wipe everything else out and uh, and and have the the turnover as quickly as possible to take six minutes um, from uh, the 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 end of play to the restart of play uh, just shows you one of the many problems we have with with VAR um, and uh, and of course how many minutes did we have added on uh, four minutes added to a game where uh, to the first half of a game in which six minutes have been lost to one decision and there's some really interesting statistics actually on, on how the actual playing time in Premier League football has substantially decreased since the introduction of VAR so not only are we getting um, the mess that I think most the majority of supporters now recognise as a mess and something which isn't a positive for football we're actually getting less significantly less football to watch as a result of having to put up with that VAR system. Um, but I think uh, the, the the bigger damage to football and the clearer winner here is nation state clubs. Um, just note that Manchester City's response to that very detailed article in which um, Gabriel Almeida's father went on record um, to explain how he had been hired as uh, ostensibly as a scout for Manchester City and did, in his words, no 
scouting work at all for Manchester City and provided the pay slips that he received from Manchester City for said um, scouting work. Um, that Manchester City refutes any wrongdoing and entirely rejects the claims that have been made, um, when, which is a, a line we've heard frequently from Manchester City um, as they have broken um, regulations that of every governing body they play under in football and been found guilty by every governing body of breaking regulations. It is, in my view, a product of having a, a state in charge of a football club where you have essentially unlimited uh, spending and a, and a level of spending far beyond what other clubs can achieve on an economic basis um, and clubs being run for um, goals that go way beyond uh, uh, economic profit or um, sporting success. And you know, the, the repercussions and ramifications are what we have seen um, through this period of, of Abu Dhabi's ownership of Manchester City and Qatar's ownership of, of Paris Saint-Germain. And I have no doubt that football would be substantially better off without nation states uh, being involved in owning football clubs. So multiple winners, really, of this week's Donkey Award. I'm not sure that the Transfer Window podcast can afford to send out gold statuettes to all of the uh, clubs owned by the City Football Group and indeed Qatar, uh, but we'll do our best um, to send those out for your fireplaces and your mantelpieces, gentlemen and ladies, um, as soon as we get the opportunity to do so. This has been the uh, second Transfer Window podcast of the week which means if you liked it, what, you, what you've heard, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. You can subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube. Please turn on your notifications and you will find out when the latest podcast has been uploaded. Please join the discussion with us. Of As you well know, and you've been doing it all week, it's been very, very interesting and thank you for that. Um, really has been um, a multiple and multi-replied uh, week in terms of our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter accounts, where of course we are at Transfer Podcast uh, and we hope that that will continue, of course. It's a big weekend of football with Liverpool Manchester United as we have previewed, so uh, we look forward to hearing your views uh, on the weekend's matches as we go forward to next week's podcast. Of course, individually, uh, I'm on Garbo SJ and Duncan's at Duncan Castles. And you know that if you get in touch with us, we will respond, of course. That's it for this particular podcast. We hope you have a very good weekend. We also hope that you stay safe and that you are well. And thanks for listening. Hey.